Transportation Matters, the CEO podcast of Daimler Trucks and Buses. Welcome, everyone, to our new episode of Transportation Matters. My name is Martin Daum. I'm the CEO of Daimler Trucks and Buses, and I hope all of you are well and healthy. Thank you so much for being with us again. Our topic today is one of the most promising energy sources for a CO2-neutral world, hydrogen. Hydrogen, for example, will be a key for truly emission-free mobility and transportation, including our industry transportation with heavy-duty trucks. The potential of hydrogen-powered vehicles has been explored for decades. Daimler has been very active in this field since over 25 years. It's not much success so far. And until today, hydrogen technology never established itself in the mass market. Today, we want to discuss why that is, and more importantly, how we can finally change that. We will discuss how we can finally take hydrogen-based fuel cells to serious production and how we can do so with trucks and buses. I'm glad we've got the perfect guest to discuss all of these questions today. Jeremy Rifkin. Jeremy Rifkin is one of the great visionaries and thinkers of our times, working on various social and technological topics, including hydrogen. He is a public speaker, political advisor, president of the TRI Consulting Group and best-selling author of 21 books, his most recent one being The Green New Deal. Jeremy, welcome to our podcast, Thank you so much for joining us today. Martin, it's a pleasure. It's nice to be with you. What initially brought you to hydrogen? How can an average American professor suddenly become a hydrogen aficionado, disciple? It had to do with, you know, I consider myself an activist uh, for the last 45 years. Uh, I've always believed you have to have theory and practice. In other words, uh, uh, much of my life has been engaged with on-the-ground work to help uh, develop an infrastructure revolution that could take us out of fossil fuels uh, and take us into uh, solar, wind, and a digital infrastructure for a 21st century clean, green global economy. And hydrogen uh, was always in the back of my mind because uh, I was aware that we needed to have a storage carrier for the sun and the wind. They're intermittent energies, um, uh, they, they're plenty of energy, enough for the entire world many times over, uh, but the sun isn't always shining and the wind isn't always blowing. So it became very clear to me many, many decades ago that we needed to take a look at hydrogen as a storage carrier that could be used not only to store the uh, solar and wind electricity, but also to be used for the hard to abate sectors. Uh, we need to take a look at hydrogen for uh, shipping. We need to take a look at it for aviation and particularly for trucking and even for smaller vehicles. We also needed to look at hydrogen to be used for the hard-to-abate sectors of steel and cement, which require a huge amount of heat. So it wasn't rocket science here to understand that hydrogen is where we had to go. There were many other parts of this infrastructure that have to be put together along the way. So maybe we could talk about that as well. And we'll come to that. But first of all, what is so amazing about hydrogen? Why hydrogen? Why not any other material? What makes hydrogen so unique? It's the basic element of the universe. It's what it's all made out of. And it's the perfect storage carrier. 
for me, hydrogen as a starting product has a high energy level, high contained energy, with the benefit that it easily releases that energy and then gets together with oxygen and comes to water. So you have a, a non-threatening starting product. You know, it's just, as you said, the most common element in the universe. And it translates in a product with very low energy level by releasing energy, which is called water, which is, again, one of the most common elements on our planet and therefore the perfect uh, combination. Well, you know, it's interesting. All of us took high school chemistry, right? Yeah. So there's always that class in high school chemistry where you take electricity and you put it in a tub of water. And then that electricity in that water allows hydrogen to go to one side of the tank and the oxygen to go to the other side of the tank. And then you store the hydrogen. Everyone in high school chemistry did that experiment. It's simple. And that's the most interesting revolutions are the most simple ones. I remember when I started as CEO of Daimler Trucks North America, one of my standard preaching was always, oil will go up. There's one certainty in, in, in life, oil price will go up. So fuel efficiency is the number one. And we were leaders in fuel efficiency and we gained market share because our trucks needed less fuel than others. And we pushed that forward and we invested hundreds of million to get more efficient engine. Great success story for our company and for the entire industry. But it was based on that oil gets more expensive. Recently, it was down to $20 a barrel. And now it goes up to 40 again. Yeah, this is oil is cheap. And then I have another memory of my youth was when I was in high school, the Club of Rome, the end of the world by 2000. Peak oil is in the 80s. By 2000, the last barrel of oil is burned. How wrong had they been? We not even reached peak oil. I think 2019 was the highest oil consumption and 20 only is not topping 2019 because of COVID, but otherwise 20 would be the record year. It's interesting you mentioned this, Martin. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. I rarely have someone bring this up. It's not about peak oil. You're right. It's about peak demand. That's what's changed. What's happened is, that this is really, this is a fascinating discussion to have now. What's happened is that uh, the market is speaking. Most of it's because the European Union has led on this, and now China, has, which I also advise, is moving forward very quickly on a transition. What's happened is that solar and wind have been on a plunging exponential cost curve, just like computers. Now, I'm a World War II baby. I'm really an old guy. Uh, when I was a kid, we had no computers. Uh, my university, where I taught at the Wharton School, uh, we created the first com computers, the UNIVAC. Mm -hmm. But in those days, these computers were so expensive that the chairman of IBM at the time, back in the 50s, uh, said, we'll have probably five computers for the world. They're too expensive. We didn't anticipate Intel's engineers. Well, those engineers in the 1970s began to double the capacity on those chips every two years and half the cost. So now we have smartphones for $25, uh, which allow you to have more computing power than send our astronauts to the moon. Here's what most people don't realize. And this is why it's about peak demand. The uh, solar and wind have been on the same exponential plunging cost curve, but these, these exponential curves, you don't see them until around the 21st to 22nd curve change. In other words, if I gave you a dollar every day, if I said to you, I'll give you a million dollars, or I'll give you a dollar every day and you can double it over 30 days, what would you choose? Everyone will take the million. But if you take that dollar and double it every day, it's through the roof, way beyond millions in 30 days. So what's happened is, when you remember this, back in the late 70s, 
a one fixed watt, not marginal cost, but one fixed watt costs $78. It's 43 cents today. It's 35 cents in 18 months from now. And so what's happened is we've got power companies in Europe and America quietly now buying 20-year contracts for solar and wind at five cents, four cents, three cents, and two and a half cents a kilowatt hour. What happened last year is really a big deal. This is why it's been peak demand now is hit. Last year, the utility-scale solar, so utility-scale solar costs just dipped below the cost of natural gas, way below nuclear, Mm -hmm. way below coal and oil. It's now dipped below natural gas, and it continues to plunge with no wind in sight. The marginal cost is near zero because the sun and the wind don't send us a bill. So what's happened is the market is now speaking, it's over. So what's happening, I, as you know, work with the energy industry. In the last four years, over $11 trillion have exited fossil fuels, $11 trillion. Two weeks ago, an American energy company, Solar and Wind, they just uh, went above Exxon in cap value for 10 days. They became the lead for energy. Above Exxon, which used to be the number one company in the entire world, Fortune 500. This is new energy out of Florida. So what's happening now is that we have trillions of dollars exiting fossil fuels. And the reason is the market is speaking, solar and wind will get cheaper and cheaper. And now you have to put in the entire infrastructure that surrounds it. Just like with fossil fuels, you have to put in the pipelines and you have to put in the road systems and the electricity. Now we have to put in the digital infrastructure that goes with it. Okay, and that fits perfectly. I I recently uh, was asked by a journalist, why don't we see uh, fuel cell trucks on the road already these days? And I said, because we need three elements to make it happen. And it's like a mathematical equation. If one element is zero, the whole product is zero. Yeah, so all three have to fall in place. Unfortunately, today, 2020, every single one is zero. Now, the big question is, can we move them parallel from zero to a value. The first one is we need a comprehensive offering in the industry. And we are working, I would say, at Daimler at the forefront. We can talk about it a little bit later. We did a joint venture with Volvo to broaden our base for the usage of the fuel cells. So this is working. I'm absolutely positive that in the next years, we have great products out there that need hydrogen. But if someone asks me, why don't you have them tomorrow? Because I wouldn't sell a single one tomorrow. Daimler, by the way, had 10 years ago already fuel cell buses on the road everywhere in Europe. And it never took off. Yeah, because now comes the second one, lack of infrastructure. The buses were the only ways where we can do it because it was individual cities who invested in hydrogen, you know, and had their isolated hydrogen tank and it worked. And they gave it up because of the third pillar. That was the cost. To run a diesel-powered truck or bus is still cheaper. And you don't run a truck because you want to, you have to, you want to gain money. And if you have a cheaper solution, our economic system forces you to the most efficient solution. And that was up to yesterday, diesel. <laughs> you know why I'm smiling? I, I got to tell you a funny story. Maybe I shouldn't do this. On, but, uh, yeah. So we had a meeting with Manuel Barroso. He was there along with a lot of our other business leaders in the room because I was advising the president on how to move forward. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the meeting, Mr. Kohler, I'll never forget, he said, no more hydrogen buses pilots. We can't provide million-dollar buses as pilots. We need scale-up. And the whole room stopped in silence. We needed to see what President Barroso would do. And President Barroso looked, and Mr. Kohler looked at all of us. Then he smiled and he said, you're absolutely right. What's missing is the infrastructure. 
It was a great moment. But now let's talk about infrastructure if we could. Yeah, and that is important. Yeah, and I think this is the biggest challenge we have. If if I look a long distance, long haul truck needs 10 tons of hydrogen a year to run. One truck. We sell 400,000 heavy duty trucks. So let's assume 20,000 trucks. We're talking 200,000 tons of hydrogen. Yeah. Where do I find it? When do I find it? Who is going to finance that whole thing? How much energy is needed? Well, let me let me talk about the infrastructure for a moment. Uh, I don't think it's a matter of the financing anymore because of the market is speaking on price. I think it's a matter of not having scaled up infrastructure projects. So let me start with what that infrastructure is all about. As you know, the European Commission has two uh, main objectives in the new commission, digital Europe and new Green Deal. Digital Europe is the actual infrastructure to deal with climate change and give us a new Green Deal but new businesses and jobs. What is that infrastructure? Remember I said that every infrastructure revolution in history, there haven't been that many, bring together communication, energy, mobility, and logistics. When they converge to manage power and move society, it changes our built environments, it changes the business models and governments. The third industrial revolution is here, but it's not being scaled. So the first is the communication revolution, it's in. We're in a digital world. We have ICT connecting the planet. We have uh, the internet. Now, four and a half billion people are connected in communication at very cheap, fixed, and marginal cost. Now that communication revolution, the digital internet, is now converging with a second internet. And that's a digitized electricity internet made up of solar and wind electricity, hopefully stored with batteries and mainly hydrogen. And now we have millions of small players, SMEs, local communities, even large companies, who are producing their own solar and wind on site because the sun and the wind are everywhere. Hmm. But what they're not using, they're sending back on an increasingly digitized electricity internet and sharing it with millions of others, soon across continents, just like we now share news, knowledge, and entertainment with data and analytics on the communication internet. So the two internets are converging. Now they're converging with the third internet, mobility and logistics, the physical internet. Hmm. So now we have increasingly, and Daimler has been a lead on this, we're increasingly seeing uh, electric and fuel cell vehicles. And so now those vehicles are going to be autonomous and they'll be managed on smart road systems connected to warehouses and logistics using the same big data and analytics on that mobility internet that we use on to share electricity on the electricity internet and share communication on a communication net. Together, they create the infrastructure communication internet, electricity internet, mobility internet. And then those three internets ride on top of the buildings. The buildings become the internet of things. Each building gets retrofitted to make it resilient for climate change. That creates a lot of jobs and businesses. Then each building becomes a node, homes, offices, factories. Each building becomes a node, an edge data center. So you can share, if you will, in a distributed way, uh, data in blockchains. Every building becomes a micropower generation site for your solar and maybe vertical wind outside. Every building becomes a storage with your hydrogen storage. And every building becomes an electric charging station for your EVs or a fuel cell station. And by doing that, this is going to change our entire business model. It's going to change the way we govern. And it's going to move us off uh, fossil fuels and hopefully give us a chance to create a more resilient society in a climate change world. It's a big mission. Yes. And now let me be a cynic for a second. And, and I know you have potentially an answer to that. That requires 
a broad coalition from everyone, from politicians, from citizens, from various industry. When I, as a manager, look at those broad coalitions, I would say these are 100 different entities. Everyone likes to discuss, to talk and decide, and no one wants to pay. They are all looking, which is the one of the 100 who pays the bill at the end of the day? Now, if I talk to a cynic on the other side, they said, big industry, they want 100 people to pay, and they are the only one to discuss and decide at the end of the day. So that's the contrary. Is that going to work, that we have where everything is interrelated with each other, that at the end of the day we get a product out where we can live with and earn money and, and pay our employees and pay the dividends and shareholders get their, their reward and governments get their taxes and everything is working smoothly in a society? You're asking some tough questions here today, Martin. So uh, I think you're asking the right questions. Let me say this. We have 11,000 cities that have signed up for the Paris Climate Agreement. 11,000 cities. And if you go to those cities, the mayors will show you their 10 electric buses and you take a photo. Yeah. Then they show you their five lead buildings, you take a photo. Then they show you your bike pass, you take a photo. They're all pilots. You know how many scaled infrastructure projects are currently uh, online in Europe? One. They're taking the old Victorian sewer system of London and redoing it. It's pitiful. So the money is there. I spend time with uh, leaders in the banking financial community all every month. What they're saying is that we have trillions of dollars that have exited fossil fuels, and we're sitting in U.S. treasuries at no interest rates. We're desperate for scale projects so we can set up green bonds and issue them so we can get long-term returns on investment on scaled infrastructure. That's where the great shifts in history occur. That's where the new economic opportunities occur. So what's missing is what you said. What we need to understand is why isn't there political will to get this done? Now, in the European Commission, we understand that while the member states will have to create the codes, regulations, standards, protocols, and incentives, they don't lay out the infrastructure. It's the Committee of the Regions. It's the 270-plus regions of Europe that lay out infrastructure. And uh, I just did a, a video for the Regional Week of Europe this week. Uh, we see the regions as critical. In my country, the 50 states own 92% of the infrastructure, not the federal government. So here are the things that are in the way. Number one, who's going to be engaged to make this happen? How do you create scale? So what we realized is that regions themselves have to begin to engage their citizenry. All right. So we have three test regions in Europe now where we've tried out something called peer assemblies. We need every region in Europe to create peer assemblies to be able to put in the digital infrastructure of the Green New Deal. Once you get these peer assembly roadmaps, they're very complex. They're construction sites. Then you can go and scale up projects and go to the banks, the pension funds, the insurance industry, and get the money. The pension funds alone are $41 trillion, and they've all moved out of fossil fuels. They're moving the public pension funds, London, New York, Melbourne, Berlin. And now the insurance industry, which is $25 trillion and getting the big hit from climate change, because they have to insure all the damage. These two funds, 41 trillion in pension funds, 25 in insurance, they're ready to go, especially in Europe. They need scale projects to issue green bonds. Hmm. It means the regions have to start seeing, taking their responsibility for the public to be engaged. But don't we need, besides the funds and the bonds, don't we need a higher price on fuel as well? Because that is, let's say, if you ask my daily problem is, 
a fuel cell truck or a battery electric truck will even with the boldest projections in 2030 still more expensive than a combustion engine. I think you need incentives for the trucks. Let's let's uh, let's talk about this for a moment. We do not need the incentives uh, very long for electric vehicles, small haul vehicles, small vehicles. We don't need it. Uh, all the studies, and you know the studies better than I do, but mm-hmm. all the studies coming out now from the auto and transport industry suggest that even though electric vehicles are only 2%, 2.5% of sales right now, mainly in China, a little bit in Europe, by 2022 or 23, I think Bloomberg and others estimate Bloomberg uh, Energy, electric vehicles will be competitive with no subsidies. By 2025, they'll be cheaper than internal combustion vehicles. By 2028, 20% of our vehicles in the world sales each year will be electric vehicles. That's at the point where we see the end of the fossil fuel civilization because we consume 92 million barrels of oil a day. Two thirds goes to transport. Now, what we do need is we need incentives now for long haul fuel cell transport. It's the same incentives that we've done for electric vehicles. Remember, this the reason the price went down for electric vehicles is we put in incentives, all right? We need to do that for fuel cell hydrogen trucks because this is going to be critical to resilience. The one thing that I'm really concerned about with climate change and pandemics is logistics. This is the big problem. We learned during the pandemic how important logistics is. If you don't, if you have, and with climate change, we're learning that in my country, we have fires across the Western United States for months at a time, hurricanes in the Gulf, floods across the Midwest. And when you have climate disasters, logistics shut down because the power grid goes down. When the power grid goes down, your gasoline pumps don't even work. They require electricity to turn them on. And then if you have electric power charging stations or fuel cell stations, they have to be turned on. So what we're seeing is that when there's a climate disaster, power grids go down. And when power grids go down, we can't get food, medicine, and water to people. So the long-haul fuel cell trucks that Daimler is pioneering, and you're number one, here's what I would suggest. Here's why we need incentives that can be provided by government at the local, state, and national level. We have 1,500 travel centers in the United States across our highway systems. Mm-hmm. And I know that Freightliner, you own Freightliner. It's the largest trucking operation in Canada, U.S., and Mexico. So those travel centers, what I'm suggesting is that there be incentives so that all these travel centers are in mostly rural areas, you know, connecting cities. Mm. There needs to be uh, solar and wind right off-site in the agricultural fields, the rural areas off-site from those travel centers that can uh, generate their own solar and wind and store it in hydrogen, if you will. So if the power grid goes down, those solar and wind facilities that are right near those travel centers can power those regular gas pumps, power the electric vehicle charging stations and power the fuel cell. We also need to have them at the warehouses. So as you move to the big cities, there are hubs of warehouses there. They're all digitized now. They all run by electricity. They all have automation. If the power grid goes down, your warehouses go down. So we need solar and wind installations there that can go to the main grid during good times with their power. But when the power grid goes down because of a climate disaster, they got to be able to go off-grid with microgrids, just like the travel centers, to provide the electricity and provide the hydrogen for your fuel cell vehicles 
and you're smiling because you know damn well you know this better than I do. No, no, I, I'm smiling, uh, Jeremy, because I rarely see someone who kicks out in 30 minutes so many ideas that can change the world and will take many years to put into reality. If I misuse you now for a moment as a fortune teller, which country, which region of the world will make that change the first and why? I believe that right now we look at the European Union and the People's Republic of China. Uh, with all of the geopolitical issues and trade issues and everything, we need to be clear about one thing. The EU and China share a common landmass from Shanghai port to the Rotterdam port. They have a long history. And it's very important that these two great powers come together and be able to develop the codes, the regulations. I think it's going to be the EU and China can share their best practices. And they've been working together for years, as you know, on this infrastructure transition. With, they can share it with the U.S. Uh, you have to look at the three great superpowers. And you would say China, U.S., Europe would go parallel on that. That's not that one area will get it and then the other two will trail and fail ultimately. One thing about America, once we get the story, we can move very quickly. And I think this is an inflection point. Americans realize that the so-called age of progress is maybe history. We're moving to the age of resilience. That's what's happening. And Americans, when they roll up their sleeves, are, are very effective. I think that the key, again, is going to be how do we make a resilient society with a uh, zero emission infrastructure? And I go back again to Daimler. It is really essential that we be able to create a resilient logistics infrastructure because we're never going back to where we were. There's going to be more climate change. There's going to be great disruptions. There are going to be climate disasters. There's going to be more pandemics. This is not going away. We can begin to create a resilient society, but it's going to require not just the technology and the market. It's going to require political will. Hopefully a younger generation will have the energy to do it, the 20-year-olds, the 30-year-olds. And they will. I, I'm absolutely sure they will. Uh, I, I fully agree with you. We have to fight climate change. The cost of global warming will be much, much higher than any cost for the transformation. I'm happy for your encouraging words concerning especially the speed the United States can change. And I can add one experience from my own life. It took us in Europe about 15 years to move in heavy-duty trucking from a manual transmission to an automated transmission. It took us three years in the United States to go from zero to 80% market share for automated transmissions. I would say this is still the power of the United States to be fast if you get the message. Jeremy, we could easily continue for another hour. Our time is up. Thank you for your insight. Thanks for your great visionary ideas. I love the hydrogen book. I love the Green New Deal. A lot of inspirations. Whoever listens, guys, buy it, read it. Lots of food for thought in it, but a long way still to make it reality. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. It's been a pleasure always. Let's do this again. And very enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. That was Transportation Matters, the CEO podcast of Daimler Trucks and Buses. If you enjoyed what you've heard, share this episode and subscribe to Transportation Matters on your preferred podcast platform. You can do this by tapping the follow or subscribe button right next to the podcast title. Meanwhile, please check out another Daimler podcast, Headlights. 
provides insights and unique stories from Daimler employees. 